Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. The glass candles are burning, and you're listening to the Obsidian Nights Podcast. of summer and on this cold morning in the north Bran Stark is seven years old and this is the first time he's been deemed old enough to see the king's justice done. They leave Winterfell at daybreak 20 in all to see a man beheaded. This chapter is loaded with tons of the groundwork that will unfold over several books. Garrod who escaped the White Walkers icy grasp in the prologue deserted his post, and now he must face the Warden of the North, Lord of Winterfell, Eddard Stark. This is episode two of the Obsidian Knights podcast. We covered the prologue of A Game of Thrones in episode one. You can catch that on Quinn's channel. I will link everything in a single solitary playlist. I will also have the link to the audio file on SoundCloud. But let's get into breaking down Bran 1. So there's a ton to unpack in this chapter. Bran 1 is one of my favorite chapters of A Game of Thrones. This is the chapter that came to George R.R. R. Martin so vividly that he had to write it. This is the chapter that inspired George to write A Song of Ice and Fire. It was the summer of 1991. I was still involved in Hollywood. My agent was trying to get me meetings to pitch my ideas, but I didn't have any to do in May and June. It had been years since I wrote a novel. I had an idea for a science fiction novel called Avalon. I started work on it, and it was going pretty good when suddenly it just came to me. This scene from what would ultimately be the first chapter of A Game of Thrones. It's from Bran's viewpoint. They see a man beheaded, and they find some direwolf pups in the snow. It just came to me so strongly and vividly that I knew I had to write it. I sat down to write. And in like three days, it just came right out of me, almost in the form you've read. So what do you think are the implications of Bran being the first POV? I think it definitely is a hint at Bran's importance in the grander uh, scheme of things. Because we see, we see more hints of this as this book continues, that there's something important about Bran. And it's interesting that... Um, the book essentially opens, like the bigger narrative, the wider narrative opens up from Bran's viewpoint. Because based on what Bran becomes later on, like his viewpoint is rather important <laughs> on, on, on multiple levels, but we're not going to spoil it too heavy right now. In this chapter, basically Bran is the first time he's ever going with his father to see the king's justice, which is Eddard Stark beheading someone. Um, Garrett has escaped the White Walkers and he's tied up to a holdfast and basically they're going to behead him. What's interesting about this is that George R. R. Martin is showing us here in this chapter that there is a lot of gray area <laughs> in these characters. There's a lot of moral ambiguity because the Starks are one of the closest things to protagonists that we have in this series. And it opens up with Ned Stark executing a man. And Ned Stark doesn't understand. He just sees this guy as a deserter. Yes. They don't realize what he has seen, what he has been through beyond the wall. 
What's interesting about this chapter, too, is that we get the first hint of, like, the attitude that the people below the wall has. We see kind of more about the nature of this world. We get hints of magic, like we see Ned's Valyrian steel sword. But then the rest of the world is kind of very, very grounded in reality. And also, what's really cool about the opening of this chapter is Old Nan's story, which we'll get into into a minute, in a minute. But... Like we said, like we mentioned in the first episode, we get like a lot of fantasy in the opening, and then here it's kind of cut off, and we just have the lost remnants of fantasy um, that are just kind of hinted at. Like the Valyrian steel sword, for instance, is described as spell forged steel, and you know it's just like one of those things. Like, what is that? What exactly does that mean, right? I do think the magic is way, way toned down in this brand chapter compared to the prologue we just left ice beings that are totally unnatural unhuman and now we're just kind of in like a regular world where some kids are with their father and their father's guard and they're going to like do some everyday lordly shit but if you look deeper like into the layers of it you get like old nan stories um, and you get more exposition on the Long Night and the White Walkers. And like you said, the mention of Valyrian steel. Even the puppies, the dial of puppies that are found in the snow. Like, all of that later seems to be bigger than what it is right now. Yeah, because George R. Martin has described his writing process of kind of like he's a mix of a gardener and an and, and architect, right? So he plants a seed, but he also kind of like builds it. A little bit but he's he's watching it grow as he's writing it right so and I feel like that's how most people write stories it, it grows as you write it so I'm sure a lot of the ideas that George R. R. Martin that show up later in the series were he might have thought about earlier but not necessarily all of them for certain for certain but there are some very clear clear things here like it like um, for instance the reaction that everyone has to seeing the dead direwolf that we'll talk about a little bit later and it's like they're all they all have fear on their face and brand doesn't necessarily understand why and the reason why is because it's a bad omen uh it, yeah and we'll explain why later it is in this chapter that we get our first taste of old nan stories and it'll take book after book after book before we can separate what story from what's real the man had been taken outside a small holdfast in the hills. Rob thought he was a wildling. His sword sworn to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. It made Bran's skin prickle to think of it. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said. Slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night, and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. That's like some juice right there. How much credibility would you give Old Nan? I would give, I think Old Nan is a huge troll. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, I think, I think there's certainly a lot of truth to a lot of her stories that we will see. But I do think she says some off-the-wall off stuff. That probably, like, like for, but there's, there's a lot of truth to this. Like, cause like the others in the long night... And the wildlings laying with them to sire half-human children. That might be true to some extent. I don't know if they literally li lie with them, but I mean, that, that could be true to some extent, considering some of the things we see later on. Yeah, I don't think it means that, like, the 
<laughs> White Walker or the wildling women are banging the White Walkers to sire these half-human children. It it's probably like more of a exaggeration where they're probably actually giving them their children like a sacrifice or something like that which we learn about kind of what Craster does with his kids but we don't really know what all we know is that he gives his babies we don't know what happens to those babies it says well there's 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 truth in this statement too it says like they consort it with giants and ghouls. Like, ghoul is kind of vague. What does that mean? They stole girl children in the dead of night. That's kind of a thing, stealing girls. But but it's also kind of painting them as just really, really, really monstrous. Like, they drank blood from polished horns. Um, we saw, we, we didn't see any living wildlings in the previous chapter, but we saw some hint of them. We know the Night's Watch it, it was hunting them for some reason, but we don't know exactly why. So it's interesting that we, we see this here. And so all of, all of the reference that we have to wildlings at this point was the dead ones there. And we know that the Night's Watch, the first people we see were hunting them. And then this. So like up until this point, we're thinking like, oh, these wildlings, they must be really, really terrible, right? <laughs> right. <sighs> and we get introduced to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. Mm-hmm. And Mance really doesn't. I don't he doesn't become a ma- major player yeah. until much later in, in the story, for sure. Much, much later. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that George had already thought him up in the, in first, the first chapter. Chapter, yeah. Yeah, so that's George R. Martin is laying seeds in this chapter from the get-go. And as we continue, we'll, we can point more and more of those out. I really think Mance has a bigger role to play in the books. Uh, I think he has a much bigger role, but I, I'm not going to get into that in this chapter but that is interesting that he laid that out for sure compared to what they did with that show that we will not speak of (laughs) we do not speak of it (laughs) this is in a song of ice and fire we will be true to a song of ice and fire (laughs) so we get some introductions so we're introduced to ned stark rob stark theon and john snow so ned at this time is about 35 years old his hair is shot with gray he's lord of winterfell and warden of the north then there's theon theon is 19 years old um theon is a lean dark youth of 19 who found everything amusing john snow and rob stark um they don't look alike but they're brothers john's eyes are gray so dark they seemed almost black but there was little they did not see he was of an age with rob but they did not look alike john was slender where rob was muscular dark where rob was fair graceful and quick where his half brother was strong and fast so we get the introductions to i i would say four major characters uh some of the most iconic characters so it, brand too so it says brand Ned, and then certainly Jon Snow, Rob Stark, and Theon. Um, all of these characters are POV except for Rob. Rob is the only one that never becomes a POV. Um, his story is largely told from his mother's perspective, who we will meet in the next chapter. So initially in this chapter, we see all of their personalities. Everyone has a chance to show some bit of their personality. We see Ned as kind of this, already this very honorable, dutiful man and then we see Bran, who's still very immature, this kind of child. 
And then you see Theon, who's just, who in this chapter immediately comes across <laughs> as someone who's just kind of dickish and using humor to cover up the fact that he's really, really sad. Even in this chapter, that's what it feels like. I was going to say, he comes off as an asshole. <laughs> yeah. And then Rob Stark, you see you see him. He's, he's the lordling. He's growing into a man. And you see exactly what he will become. And then Jon Snow, who, who has his eyes open. Um, so many metaphors... Um, that yeah because we we see later they find some pups and there's a metaphor in that as well ned stark judges the guy guilty basically he thinks the guy's crazy theon Greyjoy brought forth the sword ice the sword was called it was as wide across as a man's hand and taller even than rob the blade was valyrian steel spell forged and dark as smoke nothing held an edge like valyrian steel so at this point if you've never read the books, you're probably like, what the fuck is Valyrian Steel? And remember in the last episode when we talked about how the White Walker looked at Royce's sword as if there might have been something special about it, but then realized that there wasn't, and so he continued? Well, you might want to think a little bit about this spell-forged Valyrian Steel here. There might be There might be something connected here, and then it's also called Ice, which is... Which is an interesting name. A very interesting name. Especially a sword made of Valyrian steel that's dark as smoke. Why are we calling this ice? <laughs> right, why are we calling it ice? Why is it so big? And there's a lot of questions about this sword. <laughs> Valyrian steel is expensive. Yeah. But the amount of Valyrian steel that it took to make ice is has to be astronomical. For sure. You could literally make two swords out of it. <laughs> Could you? <laughs> so Ned says, In the name of Robert of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals and the Ronar and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, by the word of Eddard of House Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, I do sentence you to die. So this is our first hint of like the ridiculously long titles in this series that the nobles have. And this is also our second mention King Robert, who, have we, who we have not met yet. Uh, we, they, uh, Royce screams his name before he attacks the walker in the first chapter. So this is our second mention of King Robert. Um, and he's got a lot of titles. And we can, go, we can go through and explain some of these titles. We don't have to like fully go into all details. Exactly. So, so he's Robert of the House Baratheon. Baratheon is essentially his house name. It's his noble name. So he's Robert Baratheon. And Baratheon is an ancient house. There's multiple ancient houses. He's first of his name because he's the first king that's been named Robert Baratheon. And King of the Andals. See, we can get into history a little bit later, but basically the Andals were a group of people that came over to this continent, Westeros, a little bit after most people got there. So they came at some point, but they had a lot of influence. Um, so he's the King of the Andals. And the Ronar, similar to the Andals, they came over at a later point. And then there are the First Men, who were the first men to come to Westeros. Um, and the Northerners, a lot of them, well, they are descended from the first men, the Northerners. They're directly descended. And Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, well, that's pretty straightforward. There are seven kingdoms. Even though they are technically not kingdoms, it's one kingdom. They used to be seven kingdoms, but there was this whole thing with a dragon. We'll talk about it later. But it's, it's seven kingdoms, but really it's one kingdom with seven different sections. And he is protector of the realm. That's pretty much that. Pretty much explains himself. It, that pretty much explains itself. 
And then he says, Warden, Ward Eddard Stark, Ward Eddard of House Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and Warden of the North. So basically when I mentioned that the seven kingdoms were split, the North is one of the kingdoms, and instead of kings, they have wardens who are each under the king that is in King's Landing. And yeah, I know that's a little bit complicated. I hope you guys can follow that. So basically, Ned Stark is Lord of Winterfell, and then the Warden title, Warden of the North, basically means he controls that subsection. There's like a Warden of the North, the East, the West, and the South. And to clarify, Winterfell is the castle that Ned Stark lives at. It is his family's ancestral castle. Yes, yes, it is his ancestral castle, and just a little history dropping right here. It was built allegedly by Brandon the Builder after the long night. So Ned Stark beheads Garrett and then he comes to Bran. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. Do you understand why I did it? He was a wildling, Bran said. They carry off women and sell them to the others. So again, we have this idea in this very first chapter of wildlings giving humans to the White Walkers or the others. I feel like for it to be mentioned so many times, well, not so many, but two times in the first chapter that it's something that he wants us to look at. It's something that George wants us to pay attention to. Yeah, he, he loves to set these seeds. Let me tell you this. If George R. R. Martin mentions something more than twice, <laughs> it means something. It's Especially if it's in one chapter. I'm telling you, it always means something. So for him to be saying this, he's setting this up. So letting you know, like, these others, I mean, there's people that are, like, giving people to them. There's some intermingling going on in some way, in some shape or form. Yeah, I really agree that if he's mentioning stuff, like you said, especially in the same chapter, he wants us to pay attention to it. It's not a coincidence, especially not this early on. I mean, because George is a very meticulous writer. Yeah, everything that you see is meant to be here. He's like Frank Herbert in that way, where everything everything that's there is there for a reason. And that's what I really like about these books. They are very detailed. And you could you can see a lot of it in this chapter right from the beginning, how detailed the world is. You're getting all this information about Warden of the North and Winterfell and Protector of the Realm and Seven Kingdoms and House Baratheon. And you're like, what is all of this? A, a good thing about A Game of Thrones is, or a good thing about A Song of Ice and Fire is when he gives you, like, this information, it doesn't feel like a boring story that you're just learning all of this information, like, having, like, tons of information just dropped on you, like an info yeah. dump. It's, like, worked in and woven into the story, so it feels natural yeah. that you're learning this and you want to be learning this and you wish you had more. Yeah. Love and I was gonna say like when you said like he's so meticulous I was gonna say and that's why it's so good for sure and like, it can be overwhelming for some if you're just jumping into this but it's you it's more of an immersive experience it's more of a, a sensory experience almost just reading these books because you're going in and you really get to sit with these characters and really get to just exist in the world and you know that's what's just so great about it. The big takeaway from the books is you get a lot of the inner workings of a character's mind. The quote, can a man still be brave if he's afraid? Ned says that is the only time a man can be brave. 
it's great wisdom from Eddard Stark. He's just setting it up that he's very wise. Um, but then you'll you'll see his flaws as we continue. But we we see a lot of his strengths in this very in this chapter. I mean, it's just really it's just great. It's great knowledge. It's great wisdom. It's a great thing for him to be saying to his son because it's yeah. There's never been anything more true. I think. I mean, a lot of people I've seen people get that quote tattooed on them. So Bran actually misunderstood the question. So so Ned asked Bran. Did you understand why I had to do it? And Bran is like, yeah, you had to do it because he's a wildling, blah, blah, blah. And Ned is kind of like, you know, no, that's not what I was asking. So Bran kind of, you know, misunderstood it. Ned wanted to know if Bran knew why Ned was the one that had to take the man's life. And this is a good jumping point to explain uh, the North and their culture. Like, so this is House Stark. And even their name implies that they're very rigid. And the north is the north is a hard place. The north, you got to be hard to be in the north. And they've got ancient customs that go back thousands of years. And one of them is that he who passes the sentence must swing the sword. And one of my favorite quotes from this chapter is, "A ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is." And it remind it remind, military commanders that are just ordering death. It, it becomes like the soldiers become a commodity. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in the North, this is a really good reminder. Like, when you're putting somebody to death, you are taking a life. And you you should never forget that. And that's what George R. Martin is stressing here. Exactly. And just to tack on to that while we're talking about the um, customs of the Starks and their way being the old way, there is this connection that we talked about in the in our prologue episode about the white walkers having a similar culture to the children of the forest but also kind of recognizing the old way for like that one-on-one interaction between waymar and the first other that comes in into the picture so the starks like like we said earlier in this episode they descend from ancient kings of winter who came to westeros from Essos and the Starks have these old customs and they keep the old gods and it is my belief that they're kind of like a lot darker than at least their history is a lot darker than what we think it is. I mean if you read between the lines there's a lot of dark history in this entire story and you pick up on a lot of it just through bits and pieces through stories and just things that characters say about the past that a lot of dark stuff has happened in this world before and specifically on Westeros. Yeah, I think Westeros does have a lot of dark history that we will learn as the story goes on. But right now, just um, the Kings of Winter and the First Men and all of them, they seem to have some connection to the White Walkers that we can explore later as we move on through the story. But one of the most significant parts of the chapter is the direwolves being found in the snow. So the direwolves are very important to House Stark. The Stark children have an intense bond with their direwolves as the story goes on. But let's talk about them in relative to this chapter. Well, it's curious, and it's almost too coincidental in a story with magic, that the Starks would encounter direwolves, which is the sigil of their house. A direwolf, which, according to the people in this chapter, should not be beyond the wall. Um, and that's another reference to the wall from the first chapter, too, by the way. Um, it should not be this far south. And, you know, also a big implication of this chapter, and I, I'm 
touched on this earlier, is the fearful look that everyone has, that Bran notices, when they see that the wolf, the mother, was killed by a stag. Because a stag is a sigil of House Baratheon, Robert, King Robert Baratheon's house. So it's, it's kind of a bad omen if, you, if you've got one house sigil killing another house sigil. And then it's curious that out of this death, out of this destruction comes, comes new life. Out of these two things destroying themselves comes new life, comes these dire wolves. And even in this chapter it says, it's, it's something about a something born in death. A thing born in death, what a terrible fate to be born in death. Because it's mentioned that perhaps these, these pups could have been born after the mother was already dead. Which is very interesting. But it's still kind of that, it's still kind of hinting at a cycle. Life and death, a life and death cycle, which is something that's brought up time and time again. It's one of the main themes. So the direwolves, as you said, they haven't been south of the wall in 200 years. But now there is a dead one and there's also six pups. The direwolf being killed by a stag antler leaving behind six pups is definitely symbolic. It seems someone was leaving a message or a warning. Do you believe someone was leaving a message or a warning or was it just an omen? Well... I think this is George R. Martin doing great foreshadowing, and I think probably on some esoteric level in this universe, it is some kind of omen of dark things to come. Now, I don't know if it necessarily means exactly what people, what you might initially think fully, because prophecy, as George R. Martin has said, is treacherous, but it is a dark omen. I don't know if it's necessarily a message, and there's you definitely can't. Um, you definitely don't get that just from seeing this chapter itself that it was a message. You just see, you know, maybe this is a sign of something. This chapter alone makes it seem like, you know, an omen, something bad. But even John, when John talks about it, it's like the direwolf is a sigil of your house. There are five pups. You have five children. When really it's six and he dis just didn't include himself i feel like it's more it, it's something more um it's destiny yeah like so, it's almost as if this has been fated to happen right yeah we're meant to find these pups here but then you could look at it from like kind of a more nefarious angle and say that maybe something manipulated this into happening maybe something wanted this to happen for some for some to accomplish some goal like this was setting in motion something very well possible. The, I've always looked at the direwolves as the pup, the direwolf puppies in the snow as definitely something that was sent by something greater. And once you read A Dance with Dragons, there's something very interesting that occurs and you find out that the children of the forest and the direwolves have a matching eye color. So I'm going to read you a quote from a so we're going to read a quote from A Dance with the Dragons, and then we'll talk about it. Those you call the children of the forest have eyes as golden as the sun. But once in a great while one is born amongst them with eyes as red as blood, or green as the moss on a tree, in the heart of the forest. By these signs do the gods mark those they have chosen to receive the gift. Okay, so that quote is hella interesting to me because we find out that the direwolves all have golden red or green eyes which are the colors that blood raven mentions about the children of the forest um and ghost also has the coloring of a weirwood so i definitely think these 
pups were sent to these stark children by some greater power. So I mentioned earlier that Jon Snow's eyes are open. He's, he's wise beyond his years, and you can see that initially in this chapter. And what was very, what was a great metaphor in this chapter for me was that his dire wolf, his white dire wolf, its eyes were open, unlike all the other puppies. Its eyes were already open, and that's something that Bran noticed. So like Jon's eyes are open, his dire wolf's eyes are open. And, you know, this, that's, I think that's so brilliant because Jon Snow goes on to become one of my absolute favorite characters in see George R. R. Martin is sending it off here and telling you it's really good. So initially, there are five pups because Jon's direwolf that he eventually finds has wandered away from the pack and is not with his siblings. And it's just like a great metaphor for Jon himself. Like, Jon is clearly putting a barrier between him and his siblings. I mean, he's not hes not the only one that put up the barrier. Society did it. He's a bastard. He's a snow. And specifically in this chapter, he says, I am no Stark. I am not a Stark. So just initially, there's just so much symbolism right here. There's so many metaphors. There's so many parallel. The parallel between Ghost and John is so brilliant. Eyes open, separated from the brothers and sisters. Uh, there's a wall between them, and it's just very well done. And nuanced, very nuanced. You might not catch it. You you probably wouldn't catch it upon your first read. Basically, the chapter ends with them getting the direwolf puppies. Ned, after much convincing, Ned lets them keep the pups. And they go on their way back to Winterfell with the puppies in tow. And Bran is over the moon with his direwolf puppy tucked inside of his furs. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and I got my first puppy. You know, except for the guy getting executed. This is a pretty happy chapter, right? This, this <laughs> right. is like, these are the good times with the Stark boys. Just living the life. You know, they're like uh, John and Rob are racing. Uh, Bran's got a little puppy and he's all ecstatic. And they're hanging out with Dad. The, even and Theon's Jory. there. Jory's there. Everyone's, it, it, it kind of, it's no. <laughs> but there is a sense, though, like when they find the dead direwolf with the stag antler, there is a sense like of impeding doom, and it's highlighted a lot more in the next chapter. Yeah. I mean, the good times are coming to an end, and I feel like that's set up in the beginning of this chapter, where Bran is like, the day had a Christmas, uh, the day had a crispness to it that hinted at the end of summer, and he's talking about like. This was a nine-year summer. He's been alive for seven years, so his whole life has been summer. And now winter comes. And that's an interesting thing that George R. Martin sets up initially here, too, is the ridiculously long seasons that they have, which are this way for some reason. We don't exactly know why just yet. But they're this way for some strange and esoteric reason. I love the word esoteric, by the way. I don't even know what the fuck it means. It means something that's not very well understood by many people and that only a specific amount of people understand it. I like saying so it. So I'm esoteric. <laughs> I'm esoteric to esoteric. <laughs> this is one of the chapters where, like you said, where we go from a really dark, scary opening chapter or prologue, which was the last episode that we did. And then we're into brand one where... It's not as scary, but there's still this sense that something is happening, something is coming, winter is coming. Do they say winter is coming in this? 
They don't. I, I don't think they do. They don't. And that's interesting because I don't think it's much of a spoiler at this point to say Winter is Coming are the Stark words. And it's interesting that it's not said the first time that we see the Starks in the books. <laughs> Very interesting. But I do think this is a chapter that is going to shape a lot of the story as we go forward. This is what George saw that made him want to write A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think we'll probably be revisiting this chapter as we go forward. For sure. There's so much in this chapter that once you read more in the book that it requires referencing to. Because there's things that are set up that you could very easily miss. And then once you look back, you're like, holy crap, this man is a genius. It was in the first chapter. <laughs> yeah, so th this episode, we're... um. Yeah, we're going to be probably revisiting this a couple times. So we're going to wrap up today's episode of Obsidian Nights. Obsidian Nights will be available every two weeks on Sunday. You can listen to it on SoundCloud. We're working on having the audio available for you on iTunes and Google Play and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. The YouTube podcast form of Obsidian Nights is for the visual podcast these episodes will be compiled onto one playlist that you can watch straight in a row they will be ordered we are forming that playlist and it will be linked in every video and it will be on both of our channels so you can go to either of our channels and click on the playlist and you can watch them all back to back and this podcast the release time is kind of wonky but what we're kind of doing is Every two weeks, we're going to try and put one of these out because it actually takes a lot of effort to do these visually. There's a lot of editing involved. This has been the Obsidian Knights podcast with Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire. And MJ from Gray Area. Thank you guys for listening.